Thank you for listening to Truth in Life, a concise Christian belief series. This class was taught on a Sunday morning at Christ the Word Church because we believe that God's Word is truth and that His truth should shape our lives. For more information on our church, visit ChristTheWord.com. Plumb the depths of human sinfulness and grasp the wonders of God's grace. He was a pastoral theologian par excellence. Um, Owen expected that the ideal Christian home would be built on Bible reading and prayer. And he was actually one of, one of England's earliest children's authors. His, um, his book, um, The Death of Death and the Death of Christ, and I, um, one of my early purchases uh, as, a, as an informed Christian was this book, uh, John Piper says it's the most persuasive book ever written um, on the doctrine of limited atonement. If you wonder what I'm talking about, limited atonement, some people call it definite atonement. You may have heard of the acronym TULIP, uh, T-U-L-I-P, associated with Calvinism. I talked about it last year in my class, total depravity, um, unconditional election, limited atonement, Irresistible Grace and Perseverance of the Saints. Owen's work on the death of Christ and what it accomplished is really, there's no parallel. I just wish he was, he's, one of the problems with Owen though, he's really hard to read. It's because of people like him or like philosophers that are just so smart and they write these really long sentences. It's probably why I didn't major in philosophy. I got pretty discouraged reading some of these philosophers. Owen's not an easy read. Um, I can tell you that I can't, I can only read this book in parts. Um, but he is, um, I think Packer said, he wrote the foreword to this book, the modern printing of this book, and it's probably worth the price of the book just to read the foreword, because Packer does a great job. But he says, look, you, even Owen admits it, you're going to have to work to get through this, but it's gonna, the labor is worth it. Um, he, was, um, he was summoned to preach um, before Parliament on several occasions, uh, most notably the day after the execution of Charles I. If you might remember last year, I talked about the Westminster Assembly and how uh, the, um, uh, it was the only time in English history that a king was executed. Uh, there was a, um, a conflict between the Puritans and uh, the religious folk and the, uh, Charles, um, who was son of King James, King James Bibles named after. I can't go into all that history, but it's fascinating. And what an incredible time and a dangerous time uh, to be a follower of Christ. Owen was actually chaplain and advisor to Oliver Cromwell. Oliver Cromwell is the guy that led the forces that defeated Charles when England had the Civil War and he came into power and became Lord Protector. It just so happened though that while Owen was chaplain and advisor to Cromwell, he um, opposed the move to make him king uh, and so fell out of favor. It probably saved his life in the end, but it doesn't mean he had an easy life. As you'll see in the notes, he had an incredibly difficult life. After the Restoration, so Charles 
was executed, Charles I. Then Oliver Cromwell took over. He wasn't a king. He called himself Lord Protector. And then uh, Charles II, Charles' son, who had been you know, exiled in France or somewhere, he came back. They took over. And what do you think they did? They started killing everybody that was associated with you know, the other side. So a lot of the people that had to do, had put together the Westminster uh, uh, documents were put to death. And so you think about it, uh, Owen um, would have seen the decapitated friend, heads of his friends on spikes for the next 20 years because they hunted them down. Um, I'm surprised that Owen survived, but I think because he, I haven't researched the history and I really want to get into it a little bit, but I think because he opposed um, Cromwell to be king and he was brilliant and Charles II wanted his to tap into what he knew, that that's probably how he was spared. But his life was, was very difficult. He, he and his wife had 11 children and all but one died young. So he buried, and he, he buried his wife, his, the only daughter, the only child that lived past, it, past her teen years was a daughter who was also sick that he had to take care of, um, who had a bad marriage. His wife died. So he buried all 11 children, his wife. He had a very hard life. You, you heard Pastor David talk about a, um, a few weeks ago um, how um, his family, being that he lost his brothers, was surrounded by death. I uh, can't even imagine what John Owen went through, losing 11 children and his wife. Um, but Owen believed that the goal of the Christian life was knowing God. And knowing a little bit about him as a person is astonishing to think of what he accomplished as a pastor and as a theologian. Uh, before Owen, no one had ever really clearly shown how Christians relate to each person of the Trinity. I mentioned last week how Calvin expounded more on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, but Owen takes us to a place and is challenging me personally to consider how we interact with each person of the Trinity. He described the goal of the gospel as re re revealing the love of the Father who sent the Son as a redeemer of his people who would be indwelt, provided gifts, and united by the Spirit. While the death of, of the death of death and the death of Christ may be his most famous book to theologians, probably his most uh, celebrated achievement is Owen's communion with God. He maintains that, and I'd like you to catch this, and I, I, I'm going to say it twice, because this is what teachers do. He maintains that believers have distinct communion with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Distinct communion with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, I am, when I learn this, and this might be one of the most uh, compelling things that I've come across in all of my preparation for this class, these six classes, I'm like, wow, I, I never, I think of like distinct communion with Jesus because I talk to Jesus like he's a dude, right? You know what I mean? You think of Jesus incarnate 
And you know, we learn in Hebrews about how he intercedes for us, how he understands us, he's our advocate. And so it makes sense, right, to talk to Jesus. Or when we pray, we say, God the Father, Jesus, when I, he taught his disciples how to pray, and we, we pray the Lord's Prayer, right? And how does it start, right? It starts by addressing the Father. Well, where does the Spirit come in on this? And John Owen thought that we should have distinct communion with each uh, member of the Trinity. I'm trying to figure this out myself. I'm still seem to be focused on the Father and Jesus, and don't think as much about the Spirit. But Owen says of Jesus Christ, you love him not because you know him not. If you come to know Christ, you will love him. And so I'm confident that all of us would benefit from a deeper knowledge, from a pursuing a deeper knowledge of Jesus Christ. Uh, Owen said there is a wide difference between, this is what Packer said, you know, a couple centuries later. But Owen says there's a wide difference between understanding the doctrine of Scripture as in the letter and a true knowing of the mind of Jesus Christ. And so he um, has a summary, which I put here, and he, he thinks that the sum of all true wisdom and knowledge could be reduced to these three points. And I, I think, do you notice that how much it's like Calvin? Now, Calvin would have been a whole century earlier, but it's much like Calvin, the, the, what I re, um, put up here last year, last week, regarding how he started his whole systematic theology. The knowledge of God, the knowledge of ourselves. What's the one difference? It's not really a difference, it's an addition, right? So he says, given this knowledge, this is what Calvin, how Calvin started out his institutes. Then Owen says, step three, to walk with God, to know Jesus, to know God, to know the Holy Spirit. And because we can see Christ clearly, and we see Hebrews as we're studying, we're seeing that the, really the point of Hebrews, at least for the first part of the letter, and maybe the whole letter, is the supremacy of Christ. Would you agree? Is that what you get? That, that Hebrews is, that Jesus is supreme. And so when I was doing this and I had to, um, I took some liberty. So, um, and I was allowed to, but Frame, John Frame is the theologian that wrote a systematic theology that gave us sort of an outline, but I'm taking a lot of liberty in how I'm parsing this out. And so um, it seems to me that, that the place to, the logical place to start to begin to know God is to know Jesus Christ. Because compared to the Father and the Holy Spirit, knowing Jesus is easier, right? Isn't it? Because he condescended. He was a man like us. He spoke. We have people interacted with him. They got to see what it's like to be. We can see Jesus and say, there's the perfect human. There's our model. It's why Peter and Paul both said, imitate Christ. I think it came out in one of the, uh, uh, the lessons this week for our small group. I wrote that down. That, that, that seemed to be the, what we should learn here, is that we should imitate Christ. I meant to bring those questions with me, and I didn't. Um, so compared to knowing the Father, I think it's easier. Um, 
And, and the reason is because, you know, look at what he did, right? He emptied himself. He became, you know, uh, like us. He became like us. And his, his testimony is recorded for, for our benefit. You know, I think this is a really important verse near the second to last chapter in John. But these are written that you should believe. And that by believing him, you should have life in his name. This is, this, is, this is why the Gospels have been given to us. And so we've been given the Gospels to learn about the life of Jesus Christ, to learn about him so we can know God. So my contention here is that, and I'm trying to build a case here, if we know Jesus, then we know God. Jesus embodies the divine character of the Father. Quite directly, Jesus said that knowing him is equivalent to knowing the Father. And I, I appeal to scripture here. He said, he said it himself. So when we observe the ministry of Christ, we're actually observing the work of the Father. We see God in action when we look at Jesus, when we see how he, how he lived. And he was addressing, you know, the, uh, the, the disbelievers, the unbelievers, the people that doubted him. And he says, look, you know, look at what I'm doing. I'm doing good. And I'm, and I'm trying to bring glory to God, not to myself. So when Jesus begins to prepare his disciples for his departure, so at, if I'm going to fast forward to the end of his ministry, he assures, assures them that to know the Father, okay, if you, to know the Father, you just need to know me. And that's what he tells them. Oh, I went too far, right here. If you had known me, you would have known my Father. That's pretty powerful stuff. And so I, I think this is an easy case um, uh, to make. So I said last week, so I'm now moving into my main part. I said that first I was just trying to say, look, to, um, a path to knowing God is to know Christ. Um, now let's talk about that path. I said last week that knowing some re re someone requires an interpersonal relationship. And so a good place to start, if we're going to say we need to have a relationship with Jesus, I think that we should try to understand the nature of that relationship. So our first foundation should be an accurate view of Jesus. And I think it's interesting because this really dovetails with what we did in our lesson this week for Hebrews. And so when you, if you haven't done it yet and you're going to do it this afternoon, you're going to find out this really is a nice parallel. Our foundation must be an accurate view, and the first thing we should understand is that Jesus is the Christ, the Holy One of God. And one of the questions was, why is that important? Why is that important? Jesus' uh, preaching, as recorded in John chapter 6, was very difficult. You know, that's where, where he said, you know, you have to eat my flesh. And he said, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. So, um, some tough stuff, right? He said he was the bread of life. And that, the and that believers must eat this bread. And, and we, we read in verse 66, okay, just a few verses before this one. After this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. He, he did some hard teaching, and people, people left and said, I don't get this guy. He's saying some weird stuff. We can't, I, who can understand it? And people left. And so then Jesus turned to the twelve. And he asked them, are you going to leave too? Are you going to leave me? And Peter says, whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. 
Later during Christ's ministry, Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say I am? It was important that they have an accurate view of who Jesus was. And Peter says, you're the Christ. And he says, only the Spirit could reveal that to you, right? Through, through the Father, through the Holy Spirit. That's how he was able to know that. And we can know that too. We have to, but we must pursue Christ, but have an accurate view. So I say we start by revering Christ as Lord in our heart. This reminded me, um, some of you are too young to, know, to remember, but in the 90s there was a big, uh, one of the big theological debates of the day was the Lordship Salvation debate in the 90s. And it was uh, late 90s, late 80s, early 90s. It, it, two guys, John MacArthur and Zane Hodges, wrote these books that kind of, you know, butted heads. And MacArthur and others were saying, you have to make Jesus Lord of your life. And I've always thought there's a little bit of a problem with that phrase, the idea of make, you know, because it's a verb that makes it seem like I'm doing something, that I'm make, I can't make Jesus Lord of my life. He is Lord of my life, right? So I have a problem with the phrasing or how people might use it and how I can understand some pushback, but the reality is he needs to be Lord of your life. I can't get around that. I may not, I may nitpick at the phrasing, I may nitpick at the verb someone uses, but the reality is we need to revere Jesus as, as Lord of our life, because guess what? He is anyway. So let's, let's face up to it. Let's, that's a good starting point, right? He's not your bud. He's not, I remember a priest who was friend of the family and he had a bumper sticker. I've never forgotten it. It's from, I'm talking from the 60s. And he had a bumper sticker on his car because we both had the same dentist who was friend, mutual friend of the family. And it said, God is my co-pilot. And, you know, at the time, as a kid, I thought there was nothing wrong with that. But now I know better. God is not my co-pilot. He's my pilot. Right? This isn't a co-thing, right? The profound reverence that the apostles have for Jesus should stand out to you as you read the New Testament. Jesus may call you his friends. He called his disciples, you are my friends, and so I keep you in the loop. But that doesn't, you know, minimize the relationship we have. Jesus condescended, but that doesn't mean that we should elevate ourselves, Right? So when Paul, says, when Paul says, if you confess that Jesus is Lord, it's important, right? I mean, it's right there in, in Romans 10, 9. If you confess that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So there is something to be said about Jesus being Lord of your life, right? If you confess that Jesus is Lord, it's right there in Romans 10. Again, I told you I'm preaching, right? I, 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 I warned you guys. <laughs> I'm getting excited. This is, I'm, this is application, and I, I think that's where I'm headed here for the rest of the time. Consider how Peter sees his relationship with Christ in the opening of his second epistle. Um, and so it says, Simon Peter, a bondservant. Now, there's a lot of different Greek words that you can use for servant or minister or helper. 
The one that he uses here is doulos, and it means slave. Like the kind that, you, that we fight civil wars over, right? That kind of thing. Now someone might say, oh, it's states' rights, whatever, but you know what I'm talking about, okay? We're talking slave. That's how he saw it. So he definitely saw this as a vertical relationship, right? To actively, to, to know Christ, I think, requires intentional effort, okay? Intentional effort. This is, um, oh, I didn't put little quotes around it. This is uh, John Owen. Um, I wrote down in here, this quote is not in the notes, note to self. So I, I didn't put this, normally I put these things in my notes. Somehow this crept in here. So when I didn't get it, it's not in my notes. He is our best friend. That is true. And I don't want to make you think it isn't true. Okay? But he's more than that. He's not just our best friend. I pray God with all my heart that I may be weary of everything else but converse and communion with him. Friendship is most maintained and kept up by visits. Just like with people. Just like with people. He's talking about his relationship with Jesus. And I, this is what I found remarkable right here. Can you, if, I, if you take anything home today, take that. Do you know what he means? It's a little, and his language is a little, he's old guy, right? This is centuries ago. The more free and less occasion by urgent business. What do you think he means by that? Right. We generally, I generally, I confess, I go to Jesus most because I need something. It's urgent. And sometimes it's good stuff, right? I pray for Bob Forney. I pray for my wife's cousin, Chad, who has cancer. He's 48, has 10 kids. He's, he's a, loves Jesus. And it's urgent. I pray for him every day. But do I, do I talk to Jesus when, I'm, when things aren't stressed out? When, when it's not just my dutiful morning prayer? And that's where I'm, I'm trying to get to a place where when my mind is idle, I pray. I like it when I wake up in the middle of the night and I think something good, like a prayer or something, instead of what I'm going to do the next day, the work I didn't get done, etc. I'm not there, but this is like what Paul was talking about. This is our ongoing mission, right? Our ongoing mission. I, um, J.R. Packer, when I last week I put the question out, how can we turn our knowledge of God into knowledge of God? And so today, I left you hanging last week on purpose. Today is the answer. Here it is. Here's Packer's answer. To me, this is, encapsulates the whole book of knowing God, right here in this quote. The rule for doing this is simple, but he says simple but demanding. And I suppose I might have put that in your notes is that we turn each truth that we learn about God, it's why we do Bible study small group, 
why we listen to the gospel preached on Sunday morning, even though we're already saved, but we turn each truth that we learn about God into a matter of meditation before God, leading to prayer and praise to God. I think that we, your personal time in Scripture should inspire you to reflect on how the Word of God applies to you, stimulating both praise and prayer. I thought that, and I told people this, I've been working on it a long time. I've been going through the Psalms, and I'm not trying to boast in any way. I'm doing this to encourage you. But I said last year, and I'll say it again, I think that quality is better than quantity. And yes, reading through the Bible in a year is wonderful. But if you're just reading them just so you can check it off, and I got my three chapters today, or my four chapters, I don't know that you're growing much. You'd be better off taking a paragraph and, and meditating on that and thinking about how that applies to your life. And so because I'm always in a hurry, uh, everything's urgent, so the tyranny of the urgent, I've heard people here at Christ the Word call it. I, um, in my devotion, I, I commit to writing it down. I take my iPad and I just I cut and paste the verse out of the psalm that, that strikes me most. And then I, I meditate on it. I reflect on it. If I meditate, guys, I just want to make sure I don't go, mm, I'm not talking about, you know, far east, you know, that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about thinking about it. How does it apply? This is what John Owen said about meditation, if you'd like to read it. By disciplined meditation, I mean the art of pondering some chosen spiritual subject in an orderly, disciplined way. That's what, that's what I'm trying to do. I'm going through the Psalms. I'm in Psalm 111, and it's interesting because Psalm 110, which I did uh, two days ago, was one of the Psalms that we, are, we referenced in our Hebrew small group study. It's interesting how these things in my class, how my personal devotion seemed to get, make connections to small group. It did it last year as well. The purpose of this sort of meditation is to rouse the heart and soul to feel the goodness or badness of the subject being pondered. So ideally, as I look through the Psalms, I want to apply it to my life. How should I feel? How should I act? How should I respond? And I'm seeing so, you know, incremental change and I pray that, you know, it's not too late, even though I'm an old guy. I'm one of the oldest guys in the room, it seems. It's not too late to be the man or woman you ought to be. It's never too late. If you're breathing, you've got time. You've got time to be better. Meditation is an art, Owen says, that must be learned. It, you have to work at it. And so you, you, will, you can develop it. And you don't have to say, well, Randy, you're, you, you know, you're a smart guy. You know the Bible. And so, yeah, you can. It just some, comes so easy for you to write things down. We were working on the small group, my wife and my mother-in-law. And, and she said, well, how are you done so fast? Well, I, I have practice, right? I have practice. And so the thing is, so this lesson was so easy for me this week because it fits so well with my personal devotion and what I've been studying in this class, and so it was just coming out easy for me. It will come out easy for you as you, as you continue, and that's a good sign, right? It should start getting easier, doing Bible study and answering questions. That's what you're being asked to do in those small group questions. You're being asked to do this kind of meditation. That's what it is. Those questions, you notice that most of the questions aren't, 
when I wrote the Paul study last year, or I'm sorry, the Genesis one and the Paul study before that, my goal wasn't all just facts. Sure, I put some questions in there like, you know, what, what are the three things, you know, things like that. You gotta have some back, background, but most of it was just to challenge you in a, in a, in a meditative sense. Am I, am I connecting here? Am I making sense? Okay, I like it when heads go like this, that's good, that's good. I'm a teacher, I need encouragement, okay? I'm glad I'm not teaching geometry. <laughs> this is way more fun. So regular communication is required. The activity of knowing uh, someone does require habitual interaction, right? And so I think that's why, you know, I've always, for years I thought, Paul would say, I pray without ceasing. And I'm thinking, how would you ever get anything done? Right? Think about it. How does he do that? How does he pray without ceasing? And I think he does. He's not walking around, you know, like this all the time. But I think he's spiritually minded. I think that when he's idle, he's asking God for help. I think that he's in it, that God is a part of his, his, all his routines, that he probably doesn't do anything important without addressing God first. I'm about to go to work today. God, bless me in the classroom. Give my, may I be a light to my students. Uh, pray for your coworkers, your children, your children's friends, the people that they interact with. There's just so much occasion for prayer that we could make a list and keep going and still be working on it tomorrow. And so I think that's how Paul was to, to be like always praying because it was part of his mentality. His mentality, he was Christ-centered, right? So when Paul says in Colossians, as you received Christ Jesus, walk in him. Walk in him. We talked about that word walking uh, last week. It is a not enough to be in Christ. We must abide in him. So when the scripture says abide, I, I think it means living in Christ. Uh, uh, um, John, uh, Jesus says in John 15, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. And I think that's where Paul was at that place. He was asking for God's help all the time and he trusted. And to me, when I did the Paul study, of all the things I learned about Paul, I think the most profound chapter, the most profound incident was when he was preaching and Eutychus fell out the window and died. And Paul, through God, said he's not dead. Now Luke was, wrote that. Luke's a doctor. Luke said he was dead. And Paul says, no, he's not. And he lifted him up. Only a few people have raised people from the dead in Scripture. And I, I think that was this. We, we almost never see this in our lives, do we? I... Tanner, I don't know if that struck you when we were doing it, but, but Tanner was, um, um, were you involved in the Paul one or just the Genesis one? 
Oh, sorry, man, my bad. My bad. I, I, I've been struck by that. Just that, what a chapter uh, in his life. And I don't mean chapter like I'm talking about figuratively. What an episode. I'm 10 minutes left. I've got to roll here. Um, so much good stuff. So J.C. Ryle, who we're going to talk about at the end. Uh, so spotlight on J.C. Um, he, good quote. I'm going to let you read this if you can. John Owen says, we are too needy to be satisfied by a mere creature. So he says, we, we lean on Christ hour by hour. So I think we should be asking ourselves, do we hear the voice of Christ? Can we hear Jesus talking to us? How often during the day do you lack wisdom? Uh, it happens to me often. I, I try to teach math to over 100 teenagers who are many who are ill-prepared for the content that I'm presenting to them. It's an inner-city school. Many come from broken homes. I've got, a, I've got a kid who is such a jerk. I mean, it's hard not to hate him. And, you know, I call, I look up his information to call home. He, he lives with his grandma. I'm sure he's already been suspended. It's only been a first month of school. He's been suspended and been in school suspension lots of times. He's, he's mean to me. He, he tries to push my buttons on purpose. He's a jerk. He lives with his grandma. And I'm sure his grandma can't control him. I got to pray for that kid instead of hating him. Right? But I don't like him. I, I wish he would drop my class. I can't stand him. He's, he, he, but I have to pray for him. I need wisdom. I need wisdom as to how to talk to him and other kids like him. I need wisdom every day. Don't you? And where do we get that? Do we get it from ourselves? We ask Christ. He says freely. So you, James says you don't have wisdom because you don't ask, basically, right? So ask. I, this is uh, frame was the most interesting on this point that I'm going to try to make right now. He says, ethical renewal is the source of deeper knowledge. That's interesting. What does that mean? In other words, you're going to learn more about Christ by attempting to imitate him. Oh, and John Owen said, this is, I don't have a slide for this. I kind of wish I did. Something I wrote in later. I had to handwrite this one in. Owen says, as we learn to practice, so we learn much by practice. In other words, as we try to be more like Christ, as we as we progress in actually improving as a Christian, as a believer, as a person, we learn more about Christ. We're starting to, if we start to live like him, then we can learn more about what he's like. Maybe we do something and we take risk and we suffer for it, right? Then we learning more of what it was like for Jesus because 
he suffered. Does that make sense? And so we should, one of the ways, it's not just studying, is how we learn about Christ, reading and praying. It's by doing. By doing and by, by seeking personal godliness, we can, we can actually learn more about Jesus. It's been said that you really, you, you don't know a person unless you've walked a mile in their shoes. You've probably heard that expression, right? And, and that's what Peter says, right? I use this as an answer in my, in my small group this week. 1 Peter 2.21. You've been called for this purpose. Follow in his steps. This is what, I, this, this is what our, my lesson is about. In Philippians uh, chapter 1, Paul prays that the Philippians' love will abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. In verse 10, okay, you can see here in verse 10, and I'm, it is that deeper knowledge that helps us to prove what is most excellent. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. So Paul tells us the process of ethical renewal in Romans 12. Now Romans, you know, uh, and maybe, I'm not sure what the future is for truth and life. I don't know if we'll, if we'll do truth and life next year. I don't know, no one has told me. But a few years ago, I did a Roman study, and it took two, I think I did, it was two classes, because it's too much to do in one. And I've had a number of people tell me that we should do that again. You can't get too much of Romans, and there's a lot of people that maybe weren't here when I did it. And I, um, I would love to do it again, because I need it. It builds to this, whoops, let's get to it. It builds... Paul builds a case, and then to me, this is one of the crescendos, and there's a lot of crescendos in Romans. Romans 3, Romans 5, all the odd-numbered chapters. I love chapter 6. Chapter 8 is considered by some theologians the greatest chapter in the Bible. But then it builds to this. Therefore, he says, this is, this is where we're headed. I urge you to present your bodies. This is, this is ethical renewal. That's what ethical renewal, if I put a definition, this is it. To present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, this is our spiritual service of worship. That we're worshiping God when we imitate Christ. It's not just raising our hands when we sing. Let's, let's, have a, let's expand our view of what worship is. but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And that's what we're doing here this morning. That's what we do at small group. That's what we do when we promote Bible studies. We are trying, we are trying to encourage you to renew your mind. As we pursue a life of genuine sacrifice for Christ, our minds are transformed. So it's, we, we learn by doing. And the consequence is we'll know Christ better now, I know that I don't pursue all the time 
a genuine life of sacrifice. It's hard. It was one of the questions related to one of the applications in the Hebrew study this week, and it's going to be like that probably all year. I seek comfort. What's getting, I think it was a question, is what's getting in the way, right? I seek comfort, and I don't like being rejected. I want people to like me. I confess it. It's been a weakness of mine. I, I make excuses. I was a skinny kid who got picked on when I was growing up. I was goody two-shoes. I was just, you know, and so I want people to like me. And it gets in the way of making sacrifice. So if you want to pray for me, pray for that. But I imagine some of you feel what I'm feeling. Am I right? We have to stop fearing the rejection of men. It takes sacrifice, I admit. But that's what gets in the way for me. So I, I'll end you know, with this and um, read this, if you will. And with this in mind, let's pray. Father, I pray that, that each one of us here, that, that knowing you, that pursuing you, that making a sacrifice for you, that that knowledge, that, that reward will surpass the inconvenience, even the suffering that we might experience because we sought to be transformed. We sought to imitate you. We sought to be a light to others. We sought to be generous, to, to be kind, to be selfless, to be non-critical. Help us, Lord, to, to imitate Jesus and to know you more fully so that we might be a light to the world. Prepare our hearts for worship. May we be a light this morning. May we bless each other. May we glorify your name. It is in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to Truth in Life. If you enjoy this series, make sure to subscribe. And remember, this is truth to live by.